This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books Liberty, Equality, and Due Process, Cases, Controversies, and Contexts in Constitutional Law, and First Amendment, Cases, Controversies, and Contexts by Ruth Ann Robson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to Ruthann for writing these books and providing them to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 4.0. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the United States Constitution Lectures. In this series of lectures, we will be discussing the following. Section 1. We'll be discussing an introduction to constitutional law. Section 2. We'll be discussing an introduction to constitutional interpretation and judicial review. Section 3. We'll be discussing slavery and racial equality. In section four, we'll be discussing race and equal protection. In section five, we'll be discussing non-racial classifications and equal protection. In section six, we'll discuss unenumerated rights and due process. In section seven, We'll discuss state constitutions. And in section eight, we'll do a deeper dive into the First Amendment. Section one, an introduction to constitutional law. The doctrine of state action is integral to American constitutional law. With one notable exception, the United States Constitution protects individual rights only against incursions by governments, whether federal, state, or local. Generally, the Constitution does not govern the rights of individuals arguably infringed by other individuals or corporations. Note that while the term generally used is state action, State here means all levels of government. Thus, state action can be federal government or municipal government, as well as a state. Sometimes the question of state action is relatively simple, but determining whether or not an action qualifies as state action is not always so simple. Constitutional Provisions 
Let's begin by examining the text of some specific U.S. constitutional provisions. First, the 14th Amendment. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment provides, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. In the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when an actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And the 13th Amendment. Section 1 of the 13th Amendment provides neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now discussing the civil rights cases, both the 13th Amendment and 14th Amendment became part of the Constitution after the Civil War, 1861-1865. to The 13th Amendment does not have a state action requirement. Slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited. Along with the 15th Amendment, that is the right of citizens of the United States to vote, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. These amendments are also known as the Reconstruction Amendments. Each of the Reconstruction Amendments 
also includes a section that states that Congress shall have the power to enforce the amendment by appropriate legislation. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1875, forbidding racial discrimination in public accommodations, including trains, hotels, theaters, and inns. Individuals who discriminated on the basis of race could be subject to civil and criminal penalties. In five consolidated cases, known as the Civil Rights Cases, the United States Supreme Court held that the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was unconstitutional. It held that Congress did not have the power under either the 13th or 14th Amendments to prohibit racial discrimination by private persons. In short, the court held that the 13th Amendment's prohibition of slavery did not include racial discrimination and that the 14th Amendment only reached state aggression, not the wrongful acts of individuals. A Doctrine of State Action State action doctrine was an important issue in civil rights struggles, with the courts deciding many cases determining whether the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause was applicable to institutions which practiced racial segregation. Two cases are especially important and illustrate the court's changing views. Burton v. Wilmington Parking Authority and Moose Lodge v. Irvis. Both involved prominent black men challenging their racially motivated exclusion from spaces. Burton involved the Eagle Coffee Shop, Inc., which the court described as a restaurant located within an off-street automobile parking building in Wilmington, Delaware. The building was owned and operated by the Wilmington Parking Authority, an agency of the state of Delaware. And the restaurant is the authority's lessee. The Delaware Supreme Court held that the coffee shop, in refusing service to William Burton, the original plaintiff, was acting in a purely private capacity under its lease, and therefore there was no state action within the contemplation of the prohibitions contained in that amendment. The United States Supreme Court reversed. The court stated that to fashion and apply a precise formula for recognition of state responsibility under the Equal Protection Clause is an impossible task, which this court has never attempted. Instead, only by sifting facts and weighing circumstances can the non-obvious involvement of the state in private conduct be attributed its true significance. The court then proceeded with the task of sifting facts and weighing circumstances, stating, The land and buildings were publicly owned, 
As an entity, the building was dedicated to public use in performance of the authority's essential governmental functions by Delaware statute. The costs of land acquisition, construction, and maintenance are defrayed entirely from donations by the city of Wilmington, from loans and revenue bonds, and from the proceeds of rentals and parking services, out of which the loans and bonds were payable. Assuming that the distinction would be significant, the commercially leased areas were not surplus state property, but constituted a physically and financially integrated and, indeed, indispensable part of the state's plan to operate its project as a self-sustaining unit. Upkeep and maintenance of the building, including necessary repairs, were responsibilities of the authority and were payable out of public funds. The court then stated that profits earned by discrimination not only contribute to, but also are indispensable elements in the financial success of a governmental agency. The court continues, Addition of all these activities, obligations, and responsibilities of the authority and benefits mutually conferred, together with the obvious fact that the restaurant is operated as an integral part of a public building devoted to a public parking service, indicates that degree of state participation and involvement in discriminatory action, which it was the design of the 14th Amendment to condemn. The court found there was state action, thus subjecting the defendant to the requirements of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Dissenting, Justice Harlan wrote that the court's opinion, by the process of first undiscriminatingly throwing together various factual bits and pieces and then undermining the resulting structure by an equally vague disclaimer, seems to me to leave completely at sea just what it is in this record that satisfies the requirement of state action. In an opinion rendered a little more than a decade later, the United States Supreme Court distinguished Burton in Moose Lodge v. Irvis. In Irvis, the court found that a local Moose Lodge in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, was not a state actor, and thus its refusal to serve Irvis alcohol was not subject to the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The opinion for the court by Justice Rehnquist described Moose Lodge as a private club in the ordinary meaning of that term. It is a local chapter of a national fraternal organization having a well-defined requirements for membership. It conducts all of its activities in a building that is owned by it. It is not publicly funded. Only members and guests are permitted in any lodge of the order. 
one may become a guest only by invitation of a member or upon invitation of the House Committee. The court provided a review of state action doctrine, stating that in 1883, this court in the civil rights cases set forth the essential dichotomy between discriminatory action by the state, which is prohibited by the Equal Protection Clause, and private conduct, however discriminatory or wrongful, against which that clause erects no shield. While the principle is easily stated, the question of whether particular discriminatory conduct is private on the one hand or amounts to state action on the other hand frequently admits of no easy answer. Only by sifting facts and weighing circumstances can the non-obvious involvement of the state in private conduct be attributed its true significance. The court continues, Our cases make clear the impetus for the forbidden discrimination need not originate with the state if it is state action that enforces privately originated discrimination. The court held in Burton that a private restaurant owner who refused service because of a customer's race violated the 14th Amendment, where the restaurant was located in a building owned by a state-created parking authority and leased from the authority. The court, after a comprehensive review of the relationship between the lessee and the parking authority, concluded that the latter had so far insinuated itself into a position of interdependence with Eagle, the restaurant owner, that it must be recognized as a joint participant in the challenged activity, which, on that account, cannot be considered to have been so purely private as to fall without the scope of the 14th Amendment. The court continues... The court has never held, of course, that discrimination by an otherwise private entity would be violative of the Equal Protection Clause if the private entity receives any sort of benefit or service at all from the state, or if it is subject to state regulation in any degree whatsoever. Our holdings indicate that where the impetus for the discrimination is private, the state must have significantly involved itself with invidious discrimination. In other words, for the discriminatory action to fall within the ambit of the constitutional prohibition. Our prior decisions dealing with discriminatory refusal of service in public eating places are significantly different factually, from the case now before us. With one exception, there is no suggestion in the record that the Pennsylvania statutes and regulations governing the sale of liquor are intended either overtly or covertly to encourage discrimination. The exception in Irvis to which the court referred was this. The Pennsylvania State Liquor Control Board adopted a regulation that affirmatively required that every club licensee 
shall adhere to all of the provisions of the national organization's constitution and bylaws. In other words, a local Moose Lodge club had to adhere to the rules of the National Moose Lodge organization. It was a rule of the National Moose Lodge that only white men could be members and only white people could be guests. The majority stated this was not sufficient, but stated that Shelley makes it clear that the application of state sanctions to enforce such a rule would violate the 14th Amendment. So the court ruled that Irvis was entitled to a degree in joining the enforcement of the Liquor Board regulations, insofar as that regulation requires compliance by Moose Lodge with provisions of its constitution and bylaws containing racially discriminatory provisions, but that Irvis was entitled to no more. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this section. Take care.